0: Welcome to Menno HealthCast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with the Mennonite Incorporated. Please check out these great organizations at mennohealth.org and themennonite.org. And while you're there, don't forget to register for the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship Annual Gathering to be held June 21st to 23rd, 2019, where we will engage in many topics, including responding to the opioid epidemic. This is the second episode in our podcast series, Menno's in Medicine. I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger, a pediatric anesthesiologist in Baltimore, Maryland. Today I speak with Rebecca Heidkamp, who is a public health researcher at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She specializes in addressing nutrition problems in locations with low resources. She helps evaluate nutrition policies and programs in order to promote measurable improvements and empower local governments to make data-informed decisions. I'm sitting in her office where outside you can hear the busy life of Baltimore, and inside there is the smell of apple cinnamon tea surrounding us and beautiful art from Africa on the walls and shelves. Rebecca, it is wonderful to speak with you today. Thanks, and appreciate the opportunity too. Let's start by you tell me about your current projects.
1: Okay, hey, Yeah, you're catching me actually at a bit of a transition time, I actually just wrapped up a bunch of projects, one in Ethiopia, another in Kenya, and one in Tanzania, um, but right now I have um, one large initiative that I'm working on that I do some work at the global level, which is interesting, but then my country work is in Nigeria and potentially moving into Bangladesh and Burkina Faso. And Most of my work is um, focused on, actually on data for decision making is kind of the fashionable term for it, Um, but basically on trying to make information available. And then working alongside policymakers and program planners as they try to use that data. Um, and so, the objective of the work in Nigeria in particular is to um, provide some support as they're doing a couple of large national surveys. One is a food consumption and micronutrient survey, so, trying to get a sense of uh, micronutrient status and what it is that people are actually eating, actually, in women and children. Um, And those happen about once every 10 years. So it's a a big opportunity. And then also providing some technical support for some other work they're doing. And then it's an exciting piece of work where we're trying to sound silly, but a lot of times when information systems are planned, they start kind of with what data are available. They don't start with what decisions are people trying to make. And so we're starting some work around trying to really identify, you know, what are the needs that different levels of decision makers in the Nigerian government have for information, and to use that as a starting point to um, design an information system for nutrition in the country. So there's a couple other pieces of work in there, but that's, that's mostly what I'm thinking about these days.
0: How did you come to
1: choose Nigeria as your country of interest? <laughs> well, so my work is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, And um, in the area of nutrition, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has five countries that they focus on. So these are Nigeria, uh, Ethiopia, Burkina Faso, Bangladesh, and two states in India. Eventually, we'll actually do a bit of engagement in three of those. But Nigeria was the one where just the timing kind of was right to start off. So that's where we're starting off because they had some things in motion that we were able to come in and support.
0: What kind of things did they have in motion already?
1: Yeah, so they had this plan. Um, It's funny, it's been about two years in the planning to do this national survey about what people are eating and their micronutrient status, and it was a really ideal moment for us to come in. There's been a big movement globally through something called the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement, which has been this effort to try to mobilize governments, especially in low- and middle-income countries, to prioritize uh, nutrition higher on their agendas because nutrition has kind of traditionally it falls somewhere between agriculture and health, and you know it, it, it touches everything, but in that way, it kind of doesn't belong anywhere. And so, the, over the last probably five to seven years, there's been this movement to try to get governments to prioritize nutrition, and in that, to create what they call like multi-sectoral bodies or, or to develop multi-sectoral plans where health and agriculture and livestock and water and education and women's empowerment and social protection were all. of those sectors come together so there's been this movement in the nutrition world to try to bring together multiple sectors and so the challenge is that it's not just about information coming from health but you actually have to bring together information from agriculture from social protection from education from all these other ministries and Nigeria has a really nice plan they have it on paper but when you go into the country in reality Nothing's really taking hold. So they've got this beautiful multiple-sector national plan for nutrition, but very little traction. And so our piece is kind of coming in and helping them at least get some traction in the information planning arena, which eventually will hopefully help them actually achieve this idea of all of these sectors working together for nutrition.
0: So will you help them develop data collection software or...? Mm -hmm.
1: So there's groups doing all sorts of pieces of work, and actually what we're stepping in to do is a bit of the framing. So some of the major ways that data are collected, especially in the health sector, but also in other sectors are household surveys, so going around and interviewing, but also what we call administrative data, which are the data that come from health facilities, for example, and move up. Um, There's also surveillance systems sometimes, there's some environmental and climate systems, But there's no kind of master plan saying, okay, we've got all these different channels where we can collect data, but how do we know that if we look across them all, we actually are getting the data that we need? And so what we're coming in to do is actually help them with that kind of more master planning framework. I
0: understand your work now is a lot with data, Uh but you didn't start out that way.
1: Not at all. Tell me
0: how your career has evolved.
1: Yeah. So... It's funny. I actually first learned about public health when I was an undergraduate. I went to a Christian college. I went to Wheaton College um, outside Chicago and had no sense of kind of global anything, but came and we actually had chapel three times a week. And during my freshman year, the group called The Hunger, the Human Needs and Global Resources Program, students who had just come back from their six-month internships in all over parts of the world did a chapel and I was just kind of blown away and inspired. And I I say there's not too many times in life where I feel like, you know, you discover something in a moment or have one of these realizations. But almost in that moment, I realized, wow, like I'm really attracted to this. And then had the opportunity to take a public health and nutrition class in college, which just like I would sit there every day and just be like, this is what I love. So it was interesting. I had briefly considered going into clinical work, but kind of got exposed to public health so early that I decided I'd go into that. I actually was also considering doing environmental work, but through a, another story, and I got channeled along. And so I actually, right out of college, got a job with the nonprofit World Relief, which not exactly like MCC, but kind of can have some similar things where they do a variety of programs. And I got a job with their health program group and eventually started working with HIV programs. But our mission was to support churches as they did um, HIV prevention and home care for people living with HIV and so nothing really to do with nutrition and I um, lived in Kenya for part of that time I did a lot of curriculum writing and and I after about four or five years I was itching to do something else and so I really was just trying to sit and think well I want a technical specialty. I don't want to just be a program manager or a grant manager, which often if you get a master's in public health without some other kind of degree, you end up there. And I literally was just thinking, you know, I like food and okay. So I I thought nutrition, like that would be a really good fit because it kind of spans, you can work on the food system, which gets into environment and some of the things that I had loved and it also relates to health. Um, so very naively, I only applied to two graduate programs, uh, one PhD program and one master's program. The PhD program was funded, so I took it. <laughs> so I was very naive. But because I had worked in HIV prevention kind of before that, and actually my advisor, who is actually Rebecca Stolzfus, who is now the president of Goshen College, when I came in, she said, oh, you work in HIV. Well, we have this HIV clinic in Haiti that really that's affiliated with the Cornell Med School, and they really want to develop a nutrition program. So would you be willing just to go check it out? And another side story, I was really I was really resistant at first, but by the end of the year, I agreed for the summer after my first year, I'd go check it out. So fast forward, and I ended up living in Haiti for three and a half years and started at an urban clinic for women with HIV. We started a nutrition program, and I did some research alongside that where we developed mother's clubs, and we would do nutrition education and kind of bring women together and we provided a food supplement because at that time the women were not breastfeeding, which is a whole a whole other issue. It's changed completely at this point. Yeah, and so I would spend every day, you know, in a room full of women and babies and singing and holding babies on my lap. And it was a very interpersonal experience, which I really loved. I came out and um, had done a bit of consulting work for UNICEF in Haiti because the earthquake happened and, and I wanted to kind of stay in Haiti a bit longer which exposed me to another level. I had never known anything about, you know, what do UN agencies do? And so I did a little bit of work there. And then I applied to quite a number of jobs. And the one job that opened up was here at Johns Hopkins. And I actually joined an ongoing group of researchers who were working with governments. So all of a sudden I went from, you know, moms and babies to basically now all the work that I do is engaging with members of ministries of health or ministries of agriculture, prime minister's offices talking about data for health policy
0: when you were in kenya you were working with the churches
1: yeah yeah
0: what was that like what were you trying to do with the
1: churches i lived in kenya between 2000 what was it 2001 till about 2003 and these were actually really critical years in the HIV epidemic because PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which was the big HIV strategy that Bush brought in, I think it actually went into effect right around 2003 or 2004. But it means that when I was living there was the era where HIV drugs were not available. And so there was a real need for palliative care. There was a real need for just pastoral care and spiritual and emotional support, which I mean, there still is. But, you know, at that point, HIV was still a death sentence. And so the stigma was still there. I think there had been a lot of exciting work done even in decades before on um, kind of HIV care in churches. And so churches were becoming more and more sensitized to their role. So we were doing a lot of work to just kind of enable them to carry out. I worked for a really brilliant woman named Debbie Dorsbach, who is a nurse, MPH, who had been working in Africa and in HIV care for more than 20 years, and you know, she had developed some really simple, like, pictorial manuals about what a, what a church volunteer could do in order to care for HIV patients um, in their communities. We actually created curriculum for youth that churches could use to talk about relationships and sexuality and HIV prevention. Really kind of anywhere where we thought that the church could have a role would work on providing resources, doing training, creating networks, um, so they could carry that out.
0: Have you been back? to those churches that you worked
1: with and seen no, those programs yeah, are so no I with. never have I mean I know that in some of the countries where World Relief worked that they continue to be in networking with those churches and I'm sure that the work has you know grown in, in many ways but I, it'd be interesting to know what it's like to be working now in the area of, of heart you know where, where HIV meds are at least you know increasingly available in most of these contexts I think it would be just different but many of the needs would still be there.
0: From speaking with you I feel like you're very passionate about the time you spent in Haiti and the (laughs) mothers and the children that you worked with there. What what was it like what are tell me some stories that really stick with you from your time in Haiti?
1: Well one thing I just I really got to work with just an incredible team of nurses and nursing assistants who were actually the women who were the frontline workers of our program, and in particular, um, this one woman, Mona Met, who is a nurse, and just one of those people that the minute anyone meets her, you know, she she blows you away. She is passionate, smart, just so committed, so loving, and it, I actually have to laugh because I had um, gone down for a summer, come back for another academic year, and it wasn't until I went back my second summer that I actually kind of knew that I was going to stay and going to invest in something. But during my first summer, um, Mona was working within an adult, kind of one of the adult units at the clinic. And I met her for 15 minutes. And I decided I could ever work with this woman again. I would absolutely love that. And so I came back the next year and um, knew I was going to get working. And so I started to talk with the HR group at the clinic about, you know, who was it that I could potentially work with? And I said, you know, there's just this one woman. I met Mona. I really want to work there. And they just said, they'll never let her go. Like, there's no way that they're going to let her transfer over to work on this program. I was like, well, can we ask? And the cool thing is she had done maternal child health years before and had really missed it. And so when we approached her, she was so excited. And I ended up getting to to work alongside her. And I can't even... um, Yeah, just begin to say what a privilege it was to just just to work and be, you know, alongside just such wise and committed individuals. And, you know, the women I worked with continue to be in touch. They continue to be just people who I I think about on a daily basis. So and then also encounters with moms. We have all these ideas of what it means to be, you know, a poor mother living in the slums of Haiti and Yet the overwhelming thing is just people have so much dignity, and you just, again, encounter, you know, people who who are so, they're just exceptional, and we had one mother in our program who was homeless, I mean, and we're talking about homeless in a context where having a home means you might just have a, a shack, but she had some mental illness issues, and she actually lived on the street in, in one part of the city. Mona would drive down and kind of just try to check on her as much as possible. But I remember this one day where two other women who also have very little, you know, to offer, they would have food distributions from the World Food Program that were given out at the clinic. And this one day, I just remember two women coming to me and saying, we're really worried about this other mom and we really need to do something for her because, you know, and so here they are, they collected, you know, extras, from what they were given in order to give to this one mother who was homeless. Amazing and and beautiful, so many moments that are like that, that I can think about.
0: What was it like to be in Haiti during the earthquake in 2010?
1: Yeah, it's actually a little bit ironic. I had actually moved away from Haiti, but I would travel back and I was back that week in order to train there was a young undergraduate who was coming to kind of take on a little bit of a program manager role so I could go back and write up and finish my dissertation after so many years of of being away. We were down there, and the third day we were down there, the earthquake happened. So I was actually in the clinic at the time that the earthquake happened. And thankfully, you know, nothing kind of collapsed. We were in a one-story building with a tin roof, and there wasn't much to happen. So it was really pretty safe there but then the minute we got outside of like the compound walls it was total total devastation and i just i have such distinct memories of walking you know we walked up the three miles to go back to where where we stayed you know it was one of the best things about the clinic was it was entirely haitian so the director is this amazing haitian man dr jean pop who trained in the states and then moved back to Haiti, and he has never left you know in thirty years, and had started this clinic and so all of my colleagues were Haitian, and so of course they had to be with the response were immediately kind of focused on their families, so I had this young just arriving intern who I needed to make sure to take care of, and so we're walking up and just you know everywhere are just these scenes of of total destruction, and then we ended up kind of with our neighbors and basically the whole city sleeping outside that first night after the earthquake and I actually look at it like it was probably the single most holy night of my entire life where I don't even know how to describe I mean it was there'd be times where it'd be absolutely silent and then you'd hear people starting to sing and then there would be an aftershock and there would be wailing and crying and the sky was, you know, beautiful. And here we are, like, a couple people. There were a couple mattresses and probably, you know, a dozen of us just sleeping on these mattresses outside. And through the whole night, this cycle of, like, singing and wailing and um, silence. And and it's funny. I mean, there's so many stories you can tell about the earthquake, and it was really horrible. But I've heard actually even more more than one Haitian somehow still refer to it as a belle experience like a beautiful experience and I think it it has a lot to do with like how holy that night was and also just how you know people cared for each other in the days after it in the midst of this incredible grief so it sounds I hate saying it but I I consider it a privilege uh, to have been there and of course to have walked away, even though it was it was horrible.
0: How long yeah. were you there after the earthquake?
1: <laughs> we were actually only there for about 36 hours. I had wanted to stay, but I also was responsible for the, the young woman who had just started working with us. And so it's actually a funny story. We had to kind of bum rides or find a way to get her to the U.S. Embassy, which was, that took us about a day and a half to get to the U.S. Embassy. We had no telephone service, no way to communicate. And so just trying to be responsible. And our families didn't know how we were. Um, so I got her to the U.S. Embassy, and she had to fill out some paperwork. And my plan had been to, to kind of get her taken care of. They, and we had heard they were doing evacuation flights, and then I had planned to stay on and see you know, how I could get back to the clinic and help. So she was reading the work, and, and there was this thing where she was doing the paperwork where it basically was saying you had to pay the U.S. government back, but they didn't tell you how much it was going to be for the flights. And we were like, huh. And... Ultimately, she's actually half Dominican and her grandmother and her aunts and she had family on the other side of the island in Santo Domingo. And so we were like, what we'd really rather do is just to get over to the other side of the island. Then she can be with her family. You know, We can connect to everybody. I all of a sudden was like, hold on. OK, you keep working on the paperwork. I knew there was a bus station next door. That was where the long distances buses went to Santo Domingo you know, you wait here. And I I ran over and I walk up and there's a bus sitting there. And this is like 36 hours after the earthquake. You know, things were, there were still aftershocks, you know, things were still chaotic. And there were these people sitting in the booth and it was like tipped over, you know, half broken, but they're sitting in the booth behind these computers that aren't working. And in this combination of Spanish and Creole, I'm like, there's a bus. Is it going? And they said, yes, it's going. When? In an hour. Are there tickets? Yes. How much are they? It was 30 bucks. And so I literally ran back and told her, I'm like, okay, we're going to go to Santo Domingo. So we, and it turned out it was the first bus that had left uh, Port-au-Prince after the earthquake. It was the first, you know, transport that had actually gotten out of the country. Um, So we evacuated ourselves for $30 rather than a few thousand dollars. It was actually kind of chaotic and it For me to go back, given I worked with an institution that was all Haitian, they didn't really have the infrastructure for kind of me as a foreigner to be there in that moment. So I ended up instead um, going up to New York City where we had a support office. I took a semester off of grad school and then kind of lived between. I lived in New York City, was supporting some of the efforts from there, and then eventually I started traveling back and forth and supporting some of the relief efforts of the clinic.
0: Was the clinic able to survive the... Earthquark.
1: Yes. This is one of the most incredible things about this clinic, which is literally right downtown Port-au-Prince, where, I mean, in recent news, if anybody's noticed, I mean, it's not, it can be a very chaotic place to be. And they have never shut down. So there were doctors who got to the clinic the next day to make sure that people got their HIV meds. And we actually had a campus. We were in a former school building, there was a soccer field which now has actually been built up with buildings but at the time there was a soccer field and within 24 hours it had turned into a displaced person's camp so the clinic ended up for about I want to say it might even been a couple years running a camp um, until people were relocated back and so that would became part of my role was kind of taking on the nutrition response in that in that camp
0: have you been back to visit the clinic
1: I have. It's been a couple of years, and I would love a chance and a reason to get back. But yeah, they, they continue on. And, and our, our mother's clubs keep going, you know, not in exactly the way we initially designed, but yeah, they're still a really meaningful part of, of what the clinic's doing.
0: At this point in your career, you have really changed to working with local governments.
1: Mm-hmm. What is that like? <laughs> well, you know, I think... People are people, you know, so it's it's just another way. I really feel that way. It's just really another way of engaging people. Part of of my thing is I always kind of joke. I mean, I'm a white girl from the northwest suburbs of Chicago, and I'd have to say that I've, I've always kind of struggled. And I was trained from the very beginning that the goal of development is to work yourself out of a job, right? I mean, you're not supposed to continue to have a job. And I, I mean, and given all the other conversations about power and race and equity, and I've always struggled at like, well, what's my role as an outsider, as you know, someone from this context in, in this whole kind of arena of, of supporting and working against poverty in, in low and middle income countries? And I have kind of settled that in some ways, working with governments, um, I often do, I do training, um, do help with planning, have done different roles in different ways with governments, decision makers, it does feel like a way that kind of feels like an appropriate spot to be in, where some of those power dynamics and things, they're still there. Whereas as much as I absolutely loved, you know, being in the clinic with moms and babies, it was really my colleagues who were the ones who did the work, right? Yeah, I actually, I find it interesting. It's been good for the season. I often think about ways that I might be able to get back here in the U.S., a little bit closer to the front lines, but but it's been a good role. Have you had any
0: experience with working with these local governments? Any personality that's been particularly challenging, entertaining?
1: <laughs> like uh, there's always at least one. Yeah, there's always at least one, and, and I can't I can't drop any names because you never know. But yes, and a lot of what the work is is trying to figure out how to be strategic in managing personality politics as much as any other kind of politics. So I have to say I've learned a lot about uh, personality types and, and ways of communicating and that's been a big part of what I've what I've learned over the last few years.
0: How, how do you create these programs that will eventually be sustained by local resources?
1: The aspiration is always this idea that, that programs will be sustained by local resources. I think in many of the countries where I work, which are some of the poorest, you know, I, I, I mostly focused on uh, countries in Africa. I worked in Haiti, there are many, you know, economies that are growing. And there's been huge evolutions in even in some of the poorest countries where i worked in Africa. But there's a reality that development assistance still remains a major contributor to budgets and plans of most of the contexts where I work. So You do something, and and yeah, you don't know if it's going to be sustained. I think one piece for me has been trying to engage more directly with governments. There's lots of nonprofits and NGOs that do wonderful work. They often set up parallel systems to what the public sector offers, and, and for good reason. I mean, there's many reasons why in the short term... That's probably the best strategy. If you think about, you know, this individual life or even this this generation of children, for example, setting up parallel systems are sometimes the way to ensure that, you know, that those those that generation right now gets gets reached. But the only way that eventually governments or the public sector or, or other sorts of institutions can step in is if you start investing in them. Um, so that's been one way in the projects where I've worked. But even within that, you know, it's, it's still humbling to realize, you know, people turn over, you invest a lot in certain relationships, and, and people move around in positions all the time, or for now, it often feels like, you know, the development assistance is part of of the strategy and and that question of what does it look like for local resources I think is still still a big one
0: I know a small portion of your time is spent teaching students Mm -hmm. how do you encourage your students in this work
1: my number one thing um, with students is I want them to engage with the mismets of the world with the frontline workers who you know have just inspired and shaped me in so many ways and I I teach at the graduate level, which means I have everywhere from twenty one year olds coming right out of undergrad you know up to people who are older than I am and who have had a lot more life experience than I have, but a lot of them are kind of in their their late twenties and early thirties, and many of them have have lived overseas or have engaged somehow so i so for them, I give them kind of encourage them to to maybe engage with policy or find a way. but for my students who have never kind of just experience the day-to-day realities of what a frontline workers worked with, I often try to get them to go out and engage. In my class, I just in the last year actually added an assignment where they had to interview someone They had to, you know, as part of their assignment, they had to go out and talk to someone. I I teach a policy class and they end up creating these policy case studies. But again, I was just worried that they're only getting one side of the story, you know, because if you just read the articles or you just watch the inspiring documentaries or and sometimes if you just kind of come in for a week and come out, you don't get the full story behind just how complicated and how persistent people really have to be. So as much as possible, I try to encourage my students to kind of take the blinders off and and get an experience of what what it really looks like for at the high level for policy but also in the day to day of of people providing services
0: what do you do to keep yourself energized for this work
1: <laughs> good question and uh, well I have to say it's a delicate balance between for me the right amount of travel so any time that I go to a country is when I love my job the most. The problem is I come back and I'm often jet lagged. It can take, the older I get, the longer it takes to get over jet lag. I would say that going to Nigeria, going to countries is is the way that I stay excited, but also not traveling too much where I've had periods where I've traveled too much is kind of how I make sure that I can keep going in the work. I'm also, you know, because I've actually spent my whole career, I mean, 20 years uh, working in low and middle income countries and, You know, working for different organizations and, you know, in my graduate program, I trained with um, people from all over the world. So one of the best parts about my job is when I travel, I almost always get to connect with somebody I know, um, friends from different eras, you know, and and that's been a real encouragement. And I just feel like a real gift from God because didn't have to work out that way, but it really has. And I, I can probably count on one hand, you know, I've taken hundreds of trips and count on one hand the number of times that I haven't connected with someone I already knew. And that's a huge, huge, that keeps me going.
0: You mentioned your undergrad at Wheaton College. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your educational
1: path. I'd studied biology in undergrad and then did this, it's basically a minor, a program in development studies. And so as part of that, it was really the first time I had ever, I'd never done a mission trip. I'd never done anything before college of really being exposed to poverty outside of the U.S. But I lived and worked in Honduras, in rural Honduras, with a local Honduran institution. Actually, it's one that MCC SALT volunteers go to now. And worked with a maternal child health program there. The whole time I was an undergrad, I was trying to decide whether to switch to environmental science and never did. So I basically was like a biology anthropology major and then I went and worked for World Relief. I bet you if I you know, I work at a school of public health and if I surveyed most of the students here, they probably studied some side of kind of combination of biology and anthropology as undergraduates. There seems to be kind of a type. So public health or just, you know, this area was a good fit. And again, I was kind of naive. I mean, my parents I don't come from a family that's you know, there's no PhDs or MDs or kind of that level of education in my family. And so I kind of was naive. Well, then when I was like, well, you know, I just kind of looked online and found this one master's program and this one PhD program and applied and went on. So I would say that I, I skipped doing a master's. I went right on to a PhD, which is a mixed bag. I mean, it doesn't make me a great researcher, but it's, I really value what I did with my PhD.
0: You mentioned one of your mentors was Rebecca Stoltos.
1: Yeah. Tell me about that
0: relationship and how it brought you to the Mennonite church.
1: Rebecca was, it was really kind of by chance. I actually think I had encountered her once when I was working at World Relief. We had reached out to her to do some advising. I think it's when she was still here at Johns Hopkins because she went from Johns Hopkins to Cornell and now to Goshen where she's president. But I didn't really know her. But I think I knew her name, and so when I interviewed and when I applied at Cornell, I had put her down. I can't remember if at that point I really knew she was a Mennonite. I should have, but I'm not from a you know Mennonite background, so I didn't know the names necessarily. But uh, when I worked at World Relief, I had actually worked with several with several Mennonites because who had also you know worked at MCC, but working in, in community development, so I knew about the Mennonites. And then, and even in undergrad, I even remember there were a couple faculty members that you knew that you knew were Mennonites. Um, and I appreciated, so I learned little bits about Mennonite culture from them. And then it was actually, so Rebecca then became part of it, although there was no Mennonite church um, up near Cornell where we were, and she actually even attended a Methodist church at that time. So there was no Mennonite community to become part of in college, I mean, in, in grad school. But when I went to Haiti, I was... Really lonely. I mean, I was kind of stuck in this urban area. I had no. I was kind of there on my own. I worked for a, a local institution. There weren't really any foreigners um, around me. I didn't have a way to get around. And I remembered a friend of mine told me that when she had been living somewhere, she became friends with the MCC volunteers. So I literally Googled like MCC Haiti, you know, volunteers. I think maybe even blog. Like this was back like before blogs were thing. And I got the blog showed up of one of the MCC volunteers and I literally posted a comment on his blog and it was like, Hey, you know, I, I could use some friends. Um, and in the end the MCC volunteers became my friends. And so then when I was coming back, uh, to Baltimore, you know, I was looking for churches and just definitely, you know, knew that I needed to come and at least check out the Mennonite church. Um, when I got here and six years later, I, I would almost say I'm a Mennonite. <laughs>
0: I'm definitely going to say you are a Mennonite. (laughs) You are my adopted sister very much. Thank you.
1: Rebecca, it is such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's always fun to stop and reflect a bit. And so, thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for Menno HealthCast from the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship. To find out more about Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship, go to our website at mennohealth.org. Become a member today and like us on Facebook. For interested students and trainees, check out the Student Elective Term or SET Grant program. Listen to our webinars that highlight previous SET experiences. Your financial support helps make possible this production, our webinars, student grants, and the annual gathering coming in June 2019 at the Laurelville Mennonite Church Center. We would love to see you there. Musical credits go to Paul Schlitz. Editing and production credits to Eugene Stavanis. And I'm your host, Joanne Hunsberger. Join us next time for our next episode of Menos in Medicine.